Good morning, everyone. Hey, if you notice, our little jar, our prayer, prayer, answered prayer jar is filling up. In fact, we're actually out of prayer marbles. For those of you who don't know the story, it's been about a month and a half ago that, uh, well, it was New Year's because we were sitting back there and someone said, hey, for every answered prayer this year, take a marble and put it in the jar. I thought, that's a great idea. We should do it this year. So we're out of marbles. God has answered all those prayers. And it's time to get some new marbles. So hopefully next week we'll have some new, uh, new marbles for, as you pray, God answers prayer. How are you all? It is good to see you this morning. We've got some stuff going on. Susan mentioned that at the beginning of the service uh, around the world. We'll spend some time in prayer about that at the end of the service. But for now, we are in week 25 of a, of a 52-week-long series called Core 52. If you've read this been reading the book, following along, you know today we are talking about the supernatural. Anyone excited about the supernatural? Ooh. Tuesday night it was in a Bible study and a young man who just moved up to this area from the deep south down towards um, New Orleans said, hey, so when I go into my house and, and uh, want to cast out all the spirits from it, do I use Psalm 91 in its entirety, or can I just yell out Psalm 91 and all the demons will flee? And I'm like, I have never heard of that being done before. I mean, I know that we go and we pray for new homes and pray a blessing on them, and, and of course I know that, that people do exorcisms. I've never been called on to do that myself, so I'm not the expert on how Psalm 91 should be used in that situation. But I did say this. I believe that evil is real. I believe that Satan is real. I believe that demons are real. And so his question was not absurd. His question was, was based on an experience that he had where he said, yes, I know they're real too. That's why I need to know What's up with Psalm 91? Psalm 91 is a beautiful psalm, by the way. But uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that it had been used in that, in that context. Satan, demons, devils are not just the stuff of scary movies and Halloween costumes. It's as real today as it was in Jesus' time. And our activities can invite and encourage it. So be very mindful where your eyes and mind and attention go. Enough on that. How would you answer the question of the young man, and his Psalm 91 question. I don't know, would, you, would it make you a little bit nervous to have a conversation like that? Maybe a little afraid? If so, it's perfectly, perfectly natural. I had to admit, I myself was taken a little bit aback and uncertain of how to proceed. Um, but then I thought, <laughs> this is a great lead-in to the topic today. So today we're going to look at the supernatural. We're, gonna, we're going to hopefully get a better understanding of what's happening around us, both the seen and the unseen of what is happening around us. And I hope that through this we're going to gain confidence that while, while the scripture says very clearly we need to remain alert, we do not need to be afraid. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, and then I'm going to pray and we'll dig into the topic this morning. Father, this morning we thank you that you are present with us. 
And while it's clear that Satan and evil are, are at work uh, in this world, we know that you are at work as well. And just as uh, Satan is um, constricting, you are proclaiming freedom. And so to this morning we pray that your scriptures would remind us that you are the ultimate authority on all things, including authority over evil. So we lean into you and we lean into your word to understand the world we live in better. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I asked the question earlier this week, people's favorite miracles. I got a lot of, I think 72 people responded to that. The favorite miracle, hands down, was the woman with the issue of blood being healed by Jesus. How many of you guys familiar with that miracle? It was the favorite of all of them. Primarily women's favorites, uh, which I think is really interesting. No one mentioned my favorite miracle, though. And the miracle is found in Mark chapter 8. And it's the healing of a blind man. And on the face of it, it's a pretty simple little miracle story. But it's only included in the book of Mark. And it's really unlike any other miracle story of Jesus. For me, I've always seen it as, as one of the most interesting accounts in Scripture of the interplay between the seen and the unseen world. And as we read it, you, maybe you will understand why I say that. So the story begins in verse 22 of Mark chapter 8. Here's how it reads. They came to Bethsaida, Jesus and his disciples, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. So Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he got there, he spat on the man's eyes and he put his hands on him. And then Jesus asked him, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people and they look like trees walking around. And then once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. And Mark says, his eyes were open and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Now, this is one of those passages that is so immersed in my own thinking that I'm very cautious about what I preach and say about it. I don't want to, if you disagree with me, well, here's what I'm saying, if you disagree with me on this interpretation, it's all right, it's all right. But here's what intrigues me about this. While every, the vast majority of other teachers that I've read have explained this miracle as simply um, a way of describing sort of this progressive way that we gain spiritual insight where we begin with understanding and then our understanding deepens and grows uh, more full, we don't see everything clearly the first time and we slowly begin to see things more clearly as time progresses. I agree, all of that is absolutely true, but I also see something else that's hinted here in this passage. Maybe you do too. And that's that this passage seems to hint that there is more to this world than what first meets the eye. And I've always wondered if this miracle didn't give that blind man, and by extension us, a glimpse into a different, sort of a different reality, like a super reality, where men as tall as trees exist, a place where the supernatural connects to the natural. And you're thinking, what have we showed up to this morning? This guy is off his rocker. Give him a tinfoil hat and send him home. But I don't think I'm completely crazy. 
Because time and time again in Scripture, we see places where the natural and the supernatural coexist. In Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of the Bible, God, who dwells outside time and space, inhabits a garden. And he spends time with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. And it's a beautiful picture of the supernatural and the natural coexisting. And it's not just God there, however. If you know the story, you know that there's someone else existing in that in-between space. Satan, too, is there. And he seeks out the company of humans as well, not so that he can enjoy time with them, but so that he can tear them away from God. Remember what he told Eve? Did God really say you couldn't? And he says, well, yeah, yeah, I did. And he says, well, here's why he said it. He said it because he's afraid that you will become like him. And those two examples of God walking in sweet fellowship with his creation, the old hymn, he walks with me and talks with me, tells me I am his own, and then the whisper of Satan saying, you don't need God. You can do it better without God. Those two, that truth, that I am God's beloved, and that <laughs> I can do better without him, the lie. Those two things are what we see show up time and time again when we're dealing with the supernatural. While we may think the devil is just the stuff of cartoons and Halloween costumes of pitchfork and horns, the Bible never shies away from the fact that the devil, Satan, is real and he is determined to destroy us. Now, before we go any further, I want to just push the pause button for just a little bit and remind you of one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. Here's what he wrote. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. Ah, it's just fairy tales. Ah, it's just superstition. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And maybe you know someone like that. And here's the truth. Satan and the demons <laughs> are equally pleased with both errors. This morning, we don't want to give the devil too much attention. Romans 16, 19 says, we should be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. We want to spend this morning talking about Jesus, but it's important that we understand this about Satan and his legions and evil. The devil attacks in three primary ways. This is what I want you to remember. He attacks us spiritually. He wants to drive a wedge between us and God, and maybe you know someone like that who wants to have nothing to do with God, maybe because they had a horrible experience with one of his followers. He attacks physically, and, and he's not opposed to doing that, driving, driving distance between us and our, and our own health, disease, sickness, addictions. Those are all ways that Satan uses to drive a wedge between us and God. And then there's this emotional wedge that he drives. He wants to rob you of your hope and your freedom and your peace. Spiritually, physically, and emotionally, the devil uses all of those aspects to pull us away from God. 
at Sherwood Oaks, we have three people groups that, that if we were to say we, we target them, um, I hate that word, but if we were to say these are people that we feel God has specifically called us to reach out to, it would be those three people groups, the spiritually at risk, the physically at risk, and the emotionally at risk. On Sunday morning, we preach the gospel. That's, that's how we address the spiritually at risk, and hopefully you're sharing the gospel with those in your circles. We, we help those who are physically at risk by providing shelter and food and clothing and assistance, medical assistance, to those who need it. That's something we can do through the shelter and Bertha's mission and, and Becky's Place and all those wonderful organizations that we come alongside of and partner with. And emotionally, we just finished a training uh, with five people here on peer-to-peer counseling, people who can come alongside others and walk and talk with them through some stuff that they're going through, people who are hopeless and held captive by their hurts and their hang-ups and their habits. And we do that because we believe Jesus ultimately is the answer to all of those issues. If you've got uh, your Bible open to Mark 8, turn back a few chapters to Mark number 5, and I'm going to share with you what is perhaps my favorite healing and miracle of Jesus. So Jesus and his disciples have just finished up a big ministry outreach, and, and they're crossing the lake in a boat, and a storm blows up. Jesus is completely at peace, and he's sleeping there in the boat, but the disciples are terrified. They're shaking in their boots. Water is coming in, and they're like... What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And they, and they wake Jesus up. And with a single word, Jesus says, peace. And remember, the winds and the waves obeyed him. And the disciples sat back and whispered among themselves, who is this who controls the wind and the waves? Who is this who has authority over nature? The boat continues now on the peaceful lake in a southwesterly direction to an area called the uh, Gerasenes. They get off the boat. Jesus and his disciples put their feet on the shore, and Jesus begins to walk resolutely in a certain direction. As they get closer, they realize it's, it's a graveyard. Now, there are Jewish laws about hanging out in graveyards. Serious rules about that. And so when Jesus is going into it, he's already making a statement about his power and authority. But they walk closer, and they see in the distance a man. He's a terrifying man. This is a man who's been living in this cemetery for who knows how long. He's out of his mind, and he's violent. Verse 4 of Mark 5 says, no one was strong enough to subdue him. They tried to help. People tried to help. They tried to get him contained, but they couldn't. And so in the end, they just left him in the tombs. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out, cut himself with stones. Can you imagine trying to sleep at night and you hear this screaming voice in the distance keeping you awake at night? and being helpless to do anything about it. It was terrifying, and it was tragic. He was not just an irritation or a conundrum or a problem for others to solve, but he was actually a danger to himself. He's cutting himself. So as soon as Jesus walks up, 
And I picture him walking up this hill and you see the tombs in the distance and Jesus' head <laughs> crosses into view and immediately he says, come out of that man, evil spirit. The man's response was instantaneous. He falls to his knees and says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. Even demons believe and tremble, James says. Jesus asks him in verse 9, what is your name? And he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Amen. It's a terrifying encounter. I've, I've met several people that I suspect have more than just mental illness going on in their lives. It can be very scary. Jesus responds very matter-of-factly. He casts the demons, the legion, out of the man and into a herd of pigs who are promptly overwhelmed with that demonic presence and run screaming and squealing over the cliff into the water below and are drowned. The herdsmen who are guarding the pigs, alarmed and and completely beside themselves as to what to do next, run off and tell what has happened to the cities around them. And it's not long after that a crowd returns to see for themselves what has happened. And when they get there, what they see is astounding. There's the man that they had basically washed their hands of. A man they said, oh, he's... He'll always be like that. A man that they said, I, we don't know what to do with him. A man they steered clear of, sitting with Jesus. And instead of this glassy-eyed, frantic, and crazed look in his eyes, and cr- instead of this gibberish and screaming and yelling and senseless talk, he's sitting there having a conversation with Jesus. His eyes, instead of being glazed over, are clear. And the conversation, as they hear, is clear. I don't know what they were talking about. I would like to be in on that little conversation, just to see what they were discussing. Perhaps the man was telling Jesus about his family that he had lost contact with years ago. Perhaps he talked to Jesus about what happened in his life that, that traumatized him to the point that he was willing to embrace evil just to deal with that. I don't know. We can, only, we can only theorize about that. But I do know this. A man who was separated from God was introduced to Jesus. A man who was physically harming himself was introduced to Jesus. A man who was hopeless and isolated, was introduced to Jesus. And Jesus changed everything. I love the end of this story. In Mark 5, verses 18 and 20, Jesus and his disciples, their work being done, (laughs) prepare to leave, to go on their next adventure. And the man follows them to the boat, and he begs, Jesus, please, please, let me go with you. Let me go with you. I want to hang out with your disciples. I want to be with those other people that you freed from chains and slavery. I want to be part of your group. And Jesus says, no, no, I've got something, I've got something good for you. And it, it means 
going back to your family. I tell you, every week I meet men who have been isolated, separated, some who deal with all kinds of emotional stuff that are afraid to go back to their family. I, I suspect maybe this guy was afraid too. Too much water had gone under the bridge. Too many things had been said and done. Too many hurts and bitterness. Too many... He says, I'd rather go with you. Jesus says, I, that would be lovely. <laughs> but no, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I love this story's end because not only does the demon-possessed man get to return to his family, to his mother who's been praying for him, for his dad who has just thrown his hands up and said, I, I don't know, I don't know. Maybe he has a wife, maybe he has children. They've tried to move on with their lives. He gets a chance to go back and share the mercy that he's received from God. But not only does he tell his family what God has done, but the scriptures say that he told everyone in the region, and that region was called the Decapolis. It was made up of 10 Greek cities, primarily Greek, not Jewish, even though it was in this, this area. 10 Greek cities, that's why there's pigs on the hillside. And he gets to share the good news with them as well. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that we refer to Paul as the missionary to the Gentiles. And Paul was the missionary to the Gentiles. But this guy right here, I think, I think should get top billing. He's the first who got to share the gospel and the good news with people who weren't Jewish. Jesus is more powerful than Satan and all the legions of demons. And if you think this is just a cool story, then you need to read the rest of the Bible because the Bible backs this up. The Bible absolutely affirms that Satan and demons are real. 1 John 3 8 says Satan is the, is the author of all sin. He is the author of all lies. 1 Peter makes it very clear that we as believers need to be alert and a sober mind because our enemy... The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So resist him, standing firm in the faith. Resist him. But it's very clear we do not need to fear him. I love this. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan. Where? Under our feet. We do not need to fear him. John Flynn, who comes to the 9.30 service, he said this on Tuesday night. He said, you know, I like to think about this. God's got my back, and he's given me everything I need to fight what's in front of me. And he has. One of the passages that uh, you may have grown up memorizing was Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, where we are commanded to put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. Those schemes that say, you know what, you can probably do better without God. And we say, no, we resist that. So what is the armor? The armor is ultimately Jesus. 
It's the truth of Jesus. It's the righteousness of Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the peace of Jesus. It's the faith that we receive from Jesus and we put in Jesus. We face nothing on our own. We have the armor of God (laughs) and we have the host of heaven on our side. You say, oh, host of heaven. You know, we've talked about Satan and the demons, but you know what? Let's just spend a time, spend some time talking about angels. If you're like me, I get a little nervous when people start talking about angels. The vision people have of angels is sometimes weird, little fat babies with wings and arrows. It's like, no, no, no. The truth is that angels are so awe-inspiring that the temptation always is to worship them. And we don't want to do that. We're commanded not to worship them. And so instead of of talking about them in fear that we might lean into worshiping them, sometimes we just don't talk about angels at all. But let me tell you, just as Satan and demons are real, angels are real as well. The vast majority of angels, some, the demons, fell when Satan fell. They followed him. But the vast majority of angels stayed loyal, remained loyal to God. They're warriors, they're comforters, they're messengers, reminding us time and time and time again that God loves us. He's watching over us just as the angels did for Jesus. Angels accompanied Jesus in basically every step he took. From the moment that the birth of Jesus was announced to Joseph and to Mary and then to the shepherds, angels were there. A few and then a multitude. An angel warned uh, Joseph that Herod was going to kill all the babies, and so he was able to escape with Mary and Jesus to Egypt. Angels strengthened Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry. Remember that? When Jesus and the devil had the face-to-face, and at the end of it, the angels came and ministered to Jesus after his encounter there in the desert. Maybe you remember that angels ministered to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The scripture says that angels attended Jesus' resurrection. Remember when the women come to the tomb and the angels are sitting there? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Angels were there when the disciples watched Jesus ascend into heaven. And the scripture is very clear that angels will accompany Jesus when he returns to earth. Jesus and angels go hand in hand. In fact, I'm I'm pretty sure that that demon in that graveyard was, was looking behind Jesus at a legion of angels as Jesus is marching up and saying, get out of him. They look at Jesus, the son of God. They look at the angels and go, don't torture us. Just as they minister to Jesus, they do the same for us. Hebrews 1.14 says, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Do you know that you have ministering angels that serve the purposes of God in your life? Jesus says that that angels are emotionally invested in your salvation. Luke 15, 10, it says, Likewise, I say to you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Those same angels, those tens upon thousands upon thousands of tens upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands, gathered around the throne of heaven, saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Stop their worship only to say, another sinner has come home. It's those angels around the throne of heaven 
that Jesus makes it very clear have other responsibilities than leading worship. Matthew 18 says, Clara or Lucy or Romilly or Zeke or Sophia or Abby. Don't despise these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father. I love that. Each one of those angels worshiping before the throne has a child assigned to it. In fact, Leaving church, uh, leave, a couple leaving church this morning said that someone had done the numbers on the 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 numbers of angels versus the numbers of humans. They said actually it it averages out to each person having about twenty thousand angels. Like, listen, I know that I need more than one. I don't know that I need twenty thousand, but it's nice to know they're there if I need them. I love the fact. That if I want to connect with the worship of heaven, as much as I love our worship team this morning, there's a truth in the fact that you're going to be closer to heaven's worship serving in the nursery and volunteering in children's ministry than you are going to be here. Because those children have an angel attached to them. Angels are unseen, but they're also seen. In fact, Hebrews tells us that it's important to take care of strangers, not just because it's the right thing to do, but look at this. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitalities to angels without knowing it. Hospitality to angels without knowing it. It's very possible this week that you will have an experience where heaven and earth intersect. Where you will go, now wait, what just happened here? Did I see what I think I saw? Did I experience what I think I experienced? Was that a glimpse of something more real than what I normally think of as reality? And I'm, I'm hoping that those experiences will remind you that God is not unmindful of the situation that he places you in. He sees you, he loves you, and he's called you to this spot so that you can recognize him working when it happens. In the middle of that, recognize Satan's lie. In fact, when you see Satan's lie in action, that is the trigger point. We say, nah, this is an opportunity for heaven to invade earth and you speak the truth. You are God's beloved. Resist darkness with truth. Resist that lie that you can do better without God with the truth that you are God's dearly beloved. And that brings us to this moment of communion. One of the most amazing promises we have as people who, who deal with the brokenness of the world is that at some point in the history of time, <laughs> Satan and his legions will be ultimately and forever defeated. Revelation 12.10 says it this way, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of of his Messiah, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters, the devil, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. And they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. 
we're getting ready to share in a moment where we celebrate and remember the blood of the lamb. That cup and the bread will remind us of his body given for us. That sacrifice he made so that we, we would not be forever, forever displaced and removed and separated from God. But we have been, we have been welcomed in by his sacrifice on our behalf. And that is our testimony. That is the word of our testimony that we now belong to him, the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Our names are written in heaven. We belong to Jesus. Do not be afraid. We are his beloved. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we share the bread and the cup, we, um, we remind ourselves in this moment that we belong to you. Nothing can come against us that you have not equipped us to deal with. You've got our back and you've given us every resource to handle the fights and the fiery arrows of the enemy. We have, we have the angels and, the, and the, the mighty army of heaven backing us up as we follow you. Father, I know that there are hurts, there are ailments, there are bruises, and there is distance in this room. But in Jesus' name, I pray that you will overcome those, that you will reconnect us to the Father, that you will remind us that we are loved, beloved of God that places where we are hurt and ashamed and afraid and hopeless and helpless, you will give us courage to walk in a new way as we follow you. Meet us here at this table that you prepared for us. We pray this in your name, Jesus.